When it's not Netflix movie night, it's game night. And Marvel Dice Throne is a fast and fun board game for all ages. Each player selects one of eight heroes to face off in a head-to-head battle to see who earns the right to take the throne. Gameplay involves strategically rolling dice to activate special abilities, playing unique hero cards to manipulate results, and upgrading your hero board to power up your stats. This is currently being crowdfunded on Kickstarter and will have Kickstarter exclusives. Go there now to reserve your copy. Oh, and welcome to the Nomcast, the Netflix original movie podcast. I am your host, Andrew Morgan. You can follow the show at NomcastPod on Twitter and Instagram, and you can check us out on the web at NomcastPod.com. All right, the Fall Film Festival circuit has come to a close, which means we are nearing the 2021 award season, and over the past 10 months, you have probably gotten sick of me talking <laughs> about all the Netflix award conversation over the next six weeks. We will finally be reviewing a lot of those films and break down their chances as we head down the road to Oscar Sunday. Tick, tick, boom, bruise, power the dog. They're all in theaters right now. They're all going to come up soon on this show. But on today's show, we'll look at another impressive debut from actress turned director, Rebecca Hall, Passing is what we're going to cover today, and we will do that with the co-host of the Untitled Cinema Gals podcast and return guest, Morgan Roberts. Welcome back to the show, Morgan. Thanks for taking the time. Thank you so much. I'm so excited to talk about this film. I know. This is like your Super Bowl. We were talking about it off air. Like, if you look at <laughs> Morgan's uh, Twitter account, it's just, you know, half passing content. And then finally, maybe get to your own podcast. It's amazing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh, yeah. Absolutely. If it's not a Lady Burger or a flea bag right now, it's passing time. I am here. You you do put up a lot. You are meme central and very meme centric right now. That's- so. And a lot yeah, of them it, are Fleabag, and I am here for that, so I appreciate it. <laughs> <laughs> Excellent. I know this is a Netflix podcast, but during the pandemic, Fleabag season two made me weep like no person, just ugly cry at, at, at any point. Like, if you just came into my basement, I'd send you out. It was terrible. Yeah, there's only so many times you can rewatch, like, Glow or Sex Education. You <laughs> sure. have to hop over and watch Fleabag. Yeah. I was like, ah, it's probably overhyped. Let me check this out and then just puddle. Just puddle of a man. Yep, exactly. It was, it was it was tough, but one of the best seasons of television. Welcome, welcome to the Amazon Prime podcast. Sorry, everybody, you guys switched <laughs> to the wrong channel. Um, but no, let's, let's get to the next flex of it all. And I also apologize uh, to you because I know we all had such a long award season last year that some people are like, "Fuck you, this is starting already." <laughs> like they're just so mad. And but don't get mad at me. Get mad at the Gotham's. They already have nominations out, uh, and and you know half these movies haven't even come out because they jam. The schedule, you know, of course, in November and December, uh, and and it's just going to get ugly from now to the end of the it, end of the year. So it oh. really is. I mean, up your wine subscriptions, everyone. <laughs> like <Yeah>. it's <laughs> buckle up. 
Yeah, that was one beautiful thing during the pandemic that liquor stores around here finally were like, it's cool if you just like drive or like around and we'll just bring it out to your car. I'm like, excellent. Yeah, that's I mean, wine being mailed to my friend's house who worked remotely. Oh, excellent. Beautiful. Thank you. Yeah, for sure. Especially me being in uptight Connecticut. Like, it's just amazing. You know, the the difference now. It's like, ah, we're we survived this. You guys deserve this. Here's alcohol everywhere and anywhere. Exactly. But I I don't want to you know waste any more time because again you've been so hyping this film. Uh passing was a big deal uh you know what about uh, what are we looking at now? Almost 10 months ago? I guess was yeah, Sundance. Yeah, about 10 months ago. Which is insane. Um so this movie uh came out at Sundance. You watched it uh during the Sundance mm-hmm. Film Festival and it was a big deal that like right afterwards this one got gobbled up uh you know after it, such a positive showing during that film festival for 15 million dollars from Netflix and at the time they were kind of saying like is this going to be Netflix's big one and of course it's because they had a bunch of other stuff in their back pocket but uh that nobody knew about that that kind of happened but you know this movie I don't think it's going to be positioned that way, but obviously, as I said up top, I think it's definitely in consideration uh, for a lot of things going forward, and the Gotham sure do think so, because they got five nominations uh, for this film, uh, including Best Feature, Best Actress, Best Supporting, Best Screenplay, and Best Director, which will be a lot of the things that we're going to cover <laughs> soup to nuts on, on yep. this review today. Um, but, you know, it's an interesting subject, this film. Uh, it deals with the the issue of passing quote unquote uh for uh the the kind of the the trying to pass as white back in that period of course where it you know i mean at any point and and that's why i think this movie is quite relevant that i'm sure it still goes on today i've been told that's still a thing to mm-hmm. uh, to a certain extent um you know and it's uh something that obviously would have been more prevalent back then or something that would have been more strongly urged because of the more violent nature in our society. Um, and, you know, it's an interesting story about, you know, reuniting two people who knew each other at a time when that wasn't happening to one of them and then coming back and renewing acquaintances and, you know, feeling the threat of both sides of that coin. It's a very interesting story and it's by Rebecca Hall, written and directed by Rebecca Hall, the actress who's known for, you know, the town, the prestige, and and was just in the night house. I don't know if you ended up catching that at Sundance yeah. too. But uh, I did not because that was in the Sundance right before the pandemic. Oh, that's but true. Okay. they kind of so they held off on that one. And so it's kind of perfectly timed that she got to have that film where she's starring in it right. and is the lead then goes into her directorial debut. Right. Yeah. And and it's fascinating how this all came together. I mean, even for a person who is, you know, a, a relative star, she's been very successful and she still had to raise funds for this one, you know, get somebody like uh, a Forrest Whitaker on board to be a co-producer amongst mm-hmm. like, I think there's like 30 co-producers on this film. They had to raise money even last minute and the budget was only $10 million. So it, it was kind of a struggle for them to put this together. But and that was with having um, Ruth Nega on very early uh, as as Claire, and then adding 
Tessa Thompson, Andre Holland, Alexander Skarsgård, Bill Camp, which Bill Camp was the last piece because they were hoping actually Benedict Cumberbatch was going to play Hugh in this film. And then they, you know, had a tight squeeze in terms of the budget and scheduling and everything else. And so Bill Camp ended up being the one that they landed on this. Now, when you were watching this film during Sundance, did you like talk to people then? Was it kind of, you know, pitched as kind of one of the better films uh, of Sundance? Well, I think, so when you're thinking about Sundance films, nine times out of 10, you're thinking of like those extremely scrappy, like, you know, I've talked about on my podcast and other podcasts, like Lynn Shelton's one of my favorite filmmakers. Mm -hmm. And so much of the magic of her filmmaking is like, it's very like raw. You're in a very intimate setting because you have like, 10 bucks, five people's dreams and like, you know, someone's basement to make a film in. So passing was very, very different because it is maybe one of the most sophisticated, not just directorial debuts, but one of the more sophisticated films that I've seen to come out of Sundance. And yes, this is also after Promising Young Woman, which was very stylish, but I think you know, having very stylish and very bold films are also something that you see come out of that film festival. Because again, it is great documentaries, people pulling themselves up by their bootstraps or just aesthetic out the wazoo. So having something that was intimate, sophisticated, very polished and very purposeful was not something that I think anyone particularly expected right so you know it was one of those hits that kind of was like oh i am not 100 percent sure what i just watched but some of the people that i uh talked to at sundance still remembered this film and you know six months ten months down the line were like oh yeah like that film really stuck with me not in a way that i'm like oh it was flashy and great right or it was you know look at these people cobbling together something so magical despite the odds it was this is such a great piece of filmmaking and you know we're talking about rebecca hall having to scrimp and save and get this budget together when her father peter hall sir peter hall was such a renowned director in the uk Mm. and um he was a huge theater director both in the u.s and uh in uh the uk Mm -hmm. and to see someone that this is their first time directing with that type of lineage yeah i'm surprised that it took 30 people to believe in that because she literally was from the beginning brought up to see this is how you direct stuff. Absolutely. And it's almost sad to be like a person who is in an MCU movie where an MCU movie can sneeze $10 million and she's trying to scrimp Mm -hmm. and save for such a thing too. And especially one thing that Sundance is probably known for and, and Netflix is starting to show common threads with those two is 
passion projects for directors as well. And and this one definitely hits that mark because this is a, a movie that's near and dear to Rebecca Hall's lineage. It was kind of the, the crossover between um, her kind of investigating herself and then discovering this book, this novella by Nella Larson that kind of just struck a chord. I know you were telling me a little bit more than I even I think I knew about that. So if you want to illuminate on that for the audience, that would be great. Yeah, so um, so Rebecca Hall's mother, um, Maria Ewing, is an opera singer who has lineage of individuals passing. And they're, you know, her mother, in essence, was also someone who was passing, whether consciously or just inherited passing, mm-hmm. um, because she does not present as someone who is you know, as I am, which is just pure sour cream kind of person, just, <laughs> yeah. you know, close to luminescent. Yeah. Um, and uh, she's been on podcasts before, even before she was very vocal about understanding her lineage of talking about her mother being very aesthetically different than the very white, pristine you know, bourgeoisie-esque people that she was around and raised with while going to boarding school. So it's, it's really fascinating to see someone who didn't know this part about their lineage. And, you know, we see that a lot. I think um, uh, Amelia Clark from Game of Thrones talked about Mm -hmm. the fact that her grandmother also passed because she was half Indian and was very shamed for that. And, you know, that's only two generations out from where we are now. So how many, how many people have had to do this for survival and safety? Um, It's, it's truly fascinating. And it's what a harrowing thing to choose to be your first film that you put everything behind because again i think so many directors when they do their first film yes they're passionate about it but they're going to go for something that audiences will hopefully get more often than not that you know they can get people in that are super recognizable so that's going to be white audiences with white stories so choosing to do this as your first film is and a lot of times, yeah. especially if you have an acting background and you're of note at all, a mm-hmm. lot of times if you're trying to sell a film, you do a film where you can put yourself in to kind of be like help the selling point, uh, see George Clooney's career uh, as a director as part of that or, you know, Robert yeah, John Redford, Krasinski. Uh, yeah, for sure. John Krasinski. Absolutely. All uh, there's so many examples that it's kind of what you do. <laughs> if you have that mm-hmm. kind of ability, you put yourself in as a selling point and she didn't do that but she casted this this thing brilliantly as well i mean that's probably the biggest thing that has come out uh first and foremost ruth nega coming out of this um seems to be getting the most buzz we'll get to her in a second um just up top before we get into our own thoughts on it just wanted to kind of look at the the critical scores and you know a lot of times i've been talking about even uh, stuff that we've enjoyed lately. A lot of times the critics have maybe liked things a little bit more and then the audience shun it or vice versa, depending on the type of movie you're looking at. Um, and this movie is pretty much across the board being widely accepted, sometimes even higher in spots. So the only part, uh, and I got to say, I, I don't want to, sometimes with a movie that, you know, 
plays with race or is in the LGBTQ uh, plus community or any of those, sometimes IMDb gets weird. And I don't know why that Very is. Very much so. But this one is no different. I mean, you got an 83 Metascore, the highest I've seen all year for any kind of Netflix movie, a 90% tomato meter, 91% audience score, and a three and a half on Letterboxd. But yet, IMDb users are like 6.6. Uh, you know, it's all right. You know, like, and I, I, well, I, I definitely don't ascribe to that notion. So it kind of caught me off guard. Yeah. I mean, IMDb, you can just rate any film. You don't have to be a critic. So, like, Rotten Tomatoes, while, I mean, structurally, there are so many issues because we know most critics are male and white and yeah. they're the ones that get it, it, invited to. That organization, IMDb, any user with any account can make a rating. So, you know, you can just have Ding Dong in the Midwest who's freaked out that there are uh, two women of color who um, are also hinting at being queer. And they're like, nope, don't like that. Yep. And are the leads in something. How dare you? This isn't yeah. a romantic comedy. What are you talking about? Um, yeah. So, yeah, there, there's a lot of uh, backwards thinking all over. But generally, I mean, a lot of times IMDb mm -hmm. will be close to the thought of even just an audience score for Rotten Tomatoes. But this one's, you know, vastly different. So it's interesting to see uh, the difference in all that. But obviously, I know I'm talking to someone who's been a stand for this movie this whole time. So I will let you have the floor on your initial impressions, especially uh, I, you've now seen the movie twice in a bunch of different settings. So you maybe had the festival high and then that rode you for the last, you know, nine, ten months. And now you're yes. coming back in and and taking this on uh, in Netflix where they may have made some tweaks, a little bit of notes from the studio before they released it and now that you've seen it again how do we feel i mean one of the things that i was really um fascinated by was just how well paced this film was because again i had like that festival high it was like an evening yes. um premiere kind of thing so i mean so late afternoon in utah evening on the east coast where i live so um you know it's like late in the day i've already watched a bajillion other things so you know rolling into this you're like okay this is different so you know watching it on a Wednesday at my own leisure with nothing to do the next day um it it just moved so fast and covered so much ground in it's a what a 89 minute 90 minute or um yeah it's a tight hour and a half, 109 yeah. yeah 109 yeah. minutes or something like that so you know, they cover so much ground so fast and it didn't feel, I only noticed how fast it was. Cause I was like, wait a second, are we at this part already? Yeah. So that was really fascinating. And, you know, as you said, Ruth Nega, uh, the first time you watch the film, she's such a standout because the way that she is introduced is just so masterfully shot. Yeah. Um, that, that, first framing of her just sticks with you yeah um and upon rewatch it's just as wonderful but then you have tessa thompson and i know we'll talk about award contention and i feel like she's kind of a outlier in the conversation with best actress but she really i mean she makes up almost 75 80 percent of the film like mm. she is such a huge focus of screen time she 
grounds the film. She is the one who's having to reconcile. It's not Ruth Nega who's sitting there talking and reconciling about passing or not passing. She's the one caught in the middle of it. And she just does it so beautifully. And it's understated in a way to where it doesn't feel like you're being told how she's thinking or how what she believes in a hundred percent right yeah no i completely agree with a lot of what you just said uh ruth nega to me for even people who told me before i saw this movie they were like she's a standout and i absolutely agree i I think she just pops off the screen and she she gives life into this movie and and that's to your point about tessa thompson i think you know she benefits as being Claire Ruth Nega does, uh, just kind of mm-hmm. being that character who breathes life into the character, uh, uh, you know, opposite her. So you get to kind of have Rini, you know, be this kind of, you know, stoic, measured, cautious character that's kind of just trying to weigh, constantly weighing the her options and weighing the safety for her own children for for claire herself or for just trying to keep this buttoned up life that she has that she's worked so hard for that you can really tell i mean like uh you know even though you know her husband's uh, a prominent doctor and she's you know a, a person who's well received in her own community white or black it seems you know at least she has some inroads with that and yet she, she just has a carefully crafted life that she knows like one wrong turn can can all go awry and that's why you know claire kind of presents this threat to her life but also something that she desperately wants in her life where you can tell she wants a little more fun she wants a little more life she wants she wants someone who like her that feels so more free to to just like suck up that and it's this interesting push and pull between them because it's one part admiration one part fear and one part revulsion in many scenes. And obviously it comes to a head, you know, and builds up as this movie goes along and you, and you really feel that tension uh, as it goes, uh, you know, when you, when you're encountered with uh, Claire's husband uh, and, and many other scenes like that, or even just talking about the encounters her sons have that really kind of hit you um, some of the dialogue may be on the nose, but some things really do kind of stay with you too. And, uh, saying we're all passing for something, you know, when they're having conversations about passing mm-hmm. or maybe even saying, you know, you think they'd be satisfied being white and they say who's satisfied being anything, which I, I think anyone can resonate with. Um, you know, we're all kind of trying to, to hide or be our best selves, especially you know, now more in the social media age than ever, you know, we're trying to put this, you know, glossed out versions of ourselves out there or, you know, trying to hide our real selves or play two different people, uh, you know, constantly having many different faces on. So this one obviously having to do about race and in a time where the subject is fiery and aggressive and violent uh, still in our country. And obviously, you know, we still have issues to this day. Um, but I, I found that push and pull, uh, and that kind of, you know, danger underlying this relationship being the most compelling part of this movie. Yes. And it's, well, and one of the other things too, is, is not only is there that admiration that she has, uh, Rini Thompson's character has for, um, Claire, but almost like an attraction, it kind of borders on 
do I want to be her or do I want to be with her? Which I also think is very interesting to kind of hold without, you know, very being, you know, having this thing be very explicit because again, they were childhood friends. You see them as adults and you have to just build an idea of what their background was like prior to their re-entrance into one another's lives. Right. Um, So there's kind of that interesting piece that then leads to almost like that double fear because it's like, oh, am I attracted to her when I shouldn't be? Right. And am I putting myself at risk by having this woman who is married to a man who literally hates black people? Like that is that is all we know about him. He's tall, white, and hates black people. Like yes. that's all we need to know. Um, and so just that looming threat at all times is very interesting because you know, we know that that's there. And right. they go to these lavish parties, and other people might not know that that looming threat is there. And obviously, Claire is someone who certainly does not want to mention hey yeah um there's this uh person who might just come by and who knows what with a bunch of people of color because he's outwardly racist so it's you know it's very interesting the way that threat is both very philosophical and tangible in the film for sure and and i i definitely uh side with a lot of the critics that i've said where you know, this movie being in uh, 4.3 and also being in black and white, it really yeah. draws you in and it really sets the time period, especially on a budget that they may have not had to do a whole lot uh, because of those choices to actually put you in the time setting and to put you in how the, the people respond. I mean, because I'll tell you right now, I mean, if you put it in color and I'm in those brownstones... I'm not feeling like I'm in the in no. the twenties or thirties. No, absolutely I, I, not. I'm I'm you know because a lot of those things are timeless. If you're in New York City or or anywhere else where they have those iconic you know Cosby Show brownstones that everyone got used to if you grew up in the eighties and nineties. Um, but yeah, it's it's amazing that they were able to do what they could on this limited budget. Um, and I thought that a lot of it was particularly well staged and shot at times you know they don't they don't go too crazy with the cinematography because again to probably keep the movie as tight as it is but they almost Mm -hmm. you know go into almost dreamlike states and and you know play with some of you know just natural lighting and things like that that really make the movie pop at times um production design was well done uh to put them in that time period as well so i commend those um, but did you see anything else that outside of maybe say performance things or anything that stuck out for you? I mean, uh, obviously the cinematography is such a huge piece to the film because it is, you know, the way that you light the colors that you put on people, which if you look at them are probably not matching right. whatsoever. Yeah. Um, really play with the tones and textures of a film. And so I think that that, artistically was a really great tool because we are literally talking about blurring black and white. Yes. Um, not to be so on the nose about it. Right. Um, so I, I think that 
you know, yes, as a tool to be, to make it period appropriate is excellent, but then to also use it as a thematic device to enhance the story that we're telling is also super genius. And very frequently we use black and white more of a, oh, I'm trying to take you back in time kind of thing. Mm -hmm. And I think that this is one of the few where it is, I'm using black and white for multiple reasons. It's not just, you know, to make this tighter. It's not just to take you to the thirties faster than sets. Um, It, it is really because we are talking about people who had to make decisions about color Mm -hmm. and we are literally stripping color away yeah and having to play with what black and white as an aesthetic brings to that conversation absolutely and i thought even just subtle choices in terms of camera angles or even how Mm -hmm. washed out they would make a certain more white friendly you know uh more dangerous settings for of course uh Rini to be in or and that obviously by contrast Claire feels absolutely comfortable in so they kind of played a lot with that as well and like I said some of the angles if you see uh Rini out in her element she's you know pitched from lower angles or for even tones you know she's standing up a lot while other people are down like she definitely puffs out in when she's in her element but when you see her you know in the beginning of the movie when she's in a place where she's trying to shop where most white people are and she's kind of trying to pass or when she's in that uh, hotel restaurant bar area Mm -hmm. you know it's always down angle down angle like not in a position of power and it's and it's very purposeful with a lot of those camera angles and i and i definitely picked up on a lot of that yeah I mean, you would think maybe Rebecca Hall was raised by a, a theater director or yeah. something to <laughs> be so mindful of if I'm looking at someone, how am I supposed to enhance what the actor is portraying? Oh, you know, if they're trying to be submissive, maybe my camera should be looking down at them. Right. The one thing I did want to go then, and, and if anyone, you know, I didn't say we were saying staying spoiler free, but you know, for this moment, I am going to say, you know, earmuffs if you uh, if you haven't seen the film or or, or don't want to hear the ending of the film because the ending of the film is a big piece uh, yes. of this story because it it pushes everything forward to this moment. So if you haven't seen the movie and you're just like in for the thoughts and and don't want to get too deep you know, flash forward like a minute or two um, because I want to ask you. So the scene obviously in question is the scene where they're at a party at the very end of the film. And this is after uh, Tessa Thompson's character has encountered uh, Ruth Nega's husband uh, in public where now she knows that, you know, she is black and by extension, you know, is comfortable in that environment. So obviously you're going to pick up that he might think his wife is black, of course, and, and he's being very racist. So he follows uh, Ruth Negus character, Claire, to this party uh, that everyone, all the main characters are at. And there's a confrontation. And what happens there, do you find that scene ambiguous when ultimately the husband lunges towards her with an open window and unfortunately Claire falls out of the window. But where do you land on accidental 
like was a result of the lunge because the way it's shot, I found it very difficult. And I watched it multiple times, especially the benefit of Netflix. Mm-hmm. You can go back and it almost looks like the way it's positioned. If you read Wikipedia, it's like, oh, she put her arm in between them. But it's like, did she get pushed backwards because of that, though? Did like Rini help? Claire out that window or was it something to it I mean was did just... Rini jump did her right, husband right. lunge and push her I think that the ambiguity of it because I did read after Sundance because I was like okay either I missed it because I can't go back and rewatch this yeah or it is purposely ambiguous so I literally just read it is indeed purposely ambiguous in okay the good novella And I think that that kind of adds to the aren't we all as a society culpable for the demise of black people? Sure. And these characters all have a different version of that. Yeah. Mm -hmm. And I think that there is that that kind of leads to is it because of societal pressures? Is it literally because a white man is attacking someone? Is it because you think you're doing the right thing that ends up being harmful? There are so many options and ways in which, you know, people are uh, victimized by white supremacy in this nation. So Mm. why do we need to blatantly say it was one thing or another? Because then we're going to completely negate that other ways of white supremacy seeping through are not as culpable uh, for these horrible actions and, you know, these preventable deaths occurring. So I think it's really clever to keep that extremely ambiguous Mm. and to have Rini and Claire kind of still be entwined in that up until that very moment, because, you know, Rini someone who has that very tailored life, but also still won't talk about lynchings and real real threats to her children she may they're very she's very uncomfortable by that even though it literally happens it doesn't just happen in the south everyone like it happens everywhere of course um so and then you had rini who ran away or claire who ran away from that right and is somehow finding it, it enticing again and is struggling with leaving it um, I think it's just so interesting to keep them entwined until that very last moment. Right. And yeah, so it's ambiguous on purpose and I'm glad that they left it ambiguous because it's beautiful and extremely <laughs> tragic when you do it that way. Sure. And, and, and in my head, of course, cause I'm a person, I demand answers, you know, like my brain will just <laughs> yes. be like, I need this in my life that of course it's gonna, you know, give me pause uh, the first or second viewing, because I'm like, am I dumb? Did I not figure this out? Did I, like, mm-hmm. so you have those thoughts, but then you're right. Once you really kind of think it through, the 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 pulse on that party was the constant fidgeting and nervous behavior of Rini, and you can kind of decide like, is she? Does she think it's more convenient if Claire is gone, and this is just an easy yeah. way to push this away? Or is she, you know, in a more obvious sense, their friends protecting her? Or 
is it just that nobody can stop her husband's momentum and it just ended up being kind of accidental or because we saw a scene with Claire earlier in the movie where she kind of walks out into the street and has almost this suicidal-esque, you know, I don't care if I die, almost uh, fatalistic dialogue that you can also see or maybe she just jumped out the window um, yeah. you know, or, or didn't push against it. Uh, at least kind yeah. of like let it happen to her. And so there's so many things where, you know, if it causes a dialogue to be that ambiguous, then it's kind of a better conversational movie. And, and we get to this point and I appreciated that after the fact, once I got over myself, which was, yes. you know, you may tell me answers, you know, I'm, you know, we're so binary sometimes. And this movie is something that plays in shades of gray, not to be so on the nose about that pun or whatever <laughs> uh, that is. So again, I admired that the one thing, and I think we could talk more about it uh, when we talk about the, the Oscar conversation or the award season conversation, the one thing I thought was a bit of a detraction, but I don't think, I think it's more me than her, <laughs> is Tessa Thompson in this movie. I think she has to, she's the only person who I felt like I was watching acting, um, where like, because I guess Ruth Nega could be more free about it, or at least like she knew who her character was a lot in there. But I think it's because Tessa Thompson needs to be so stoic and contemplative and subtle and everything else that at, I don't know, at times her delivery just seemed to be like she was in a, like they weren't in the sink, which again, I guess maybe they yeah. aren't as characters, but I felt like Tessa Thompson more than even Andre Holland. I liked Andre Holland actually a lot in this movie too, but Ruth Negga and Andre Holland, I thought did, I didn't feel their acting, but Tessa Thompson, I think maybe cause she had to, to think about how measured she is as a character that maybe that bled into performance that she's the only one where I was like, okay, I like her, but I don't love her as much as I do some of these other people. Yeah. But I also think that the character of Rainey is so much of a woman who is trying to desperately reflect her time and her community. And um, that also kind of goes into like pop culture. So right. how were people holding themselves and presenting themselves in films was like very rigid. And they had like this very odd, what they called neutral accent that sure. literally no one talks like. No, I know. So and that, that you, I felt she was doing more than everybody else too. So that's why it kind of maybe jarred me. A and little. I, and I think that that kind of is a very interesting flavor to add though, because who are we seeing using that accent in 1920s and 40s films, but white people? True. We're not seeing black people use that accent. They don't use the transatlantic accent. It is Catherine Hepburn and Cary Grants and Vivian Lees. It is not True. Hattie McDaniels. So, you know, having her do that, whether it was conscious or subconscious, is, I think, kind of a, an added layer that to me is pretty brilliant in that performance because she is in essence, if you look at Tessa Thompson's other film, um, uh, sorry to bother you. Mm -hmm. That was also about passing, but you're passing on the phone. You're having to use right. your white voice. Yes. And so here she is using a very sophisticated, you know, societally proper voice when she right. is talking with people. And it's very evident when she's using that voice because she's using it when she's trying to maintain power and maintain control. Right. Yeah, another movie, sorry to bother you, uh, produced 
co part by uh Forrest Whitaker. So apparently he yeah. has a type here uh, in terms of. Uh, so does Tessa taste. Thompson. Tessa sure. Thompson's got great taste. Dear white people, sorry to bother you passing. Honestly, a perfect trilogy there. Yeah, honestly. That's a, yeah, exactly. Uh, so, you know, drive ins, get your double features, triple features together, and let's do this. So uh, I'm all for that. And, and, and this movie, I think, is very good. Like I said, a lot of that push and pull, the tension, the going between all that, even the tough parts to watch, you know, the nickname for Claire scene or even stuff like that, which mm-hmm. gets, ooh, you just want to crawl in a hole, um, you know, but on purpose. I think this movie is very well done, and it seems, obviously, uh, that you believe the same. Yes, it, very much so. Is this? Would you say this is one of your favorites or your favorite of the year thus far? It, so far, yeah, it's certainly one of my top films. There have been a couple here and there that I think kind of all have so many great strengths to them. I mean, Nine Days is one, Before, mm. During, After, and then Passing. You know, those were the films that kind of, once I watched them, I was like, oh, that just kind of, that random scene is still going to just pop up when I'm right. doing X, Y, or Z. So, um, but yeah, Passing certainly has been one that has been extremely well contained because- right. Saw it at the start of the year and it's coming out now. Right. Yeah, it's definitely, you know, as far as the stuff that's come out, there's there's a few that haven't come out yet that I have ahead of this. But as far as the stuff that comes out, it's definitely a top 10 film for me for the year. Um, awesome. e- even for some things that maybe I thought... You know, it's a it's a first time director too. For for the fact that we're even nitpicking is an accomplishment. Um, let alone the fact that, like I said, they're already in the conversations with five nominations at the Gotham. So who am I to stand in the way uh, of the progress <laughs> of this film? Um, I, I I definitely enjoyed myself at the movie theater, enjoying it that way too. So uh, Netflix, keep doing that. Thank you for doing that. Hello there. I'm Colleen. I'm Anders. And I'm Daniel. We're three nerds that met through our love of science fiction and fantasy storytelling. Of course, one of our favorites is George Lucas's signature achievement, Star Wars. And if there's one thing the internet definitely doesn't have enough of, it's nerds talking about Star Wars. So here we are with yet another Star Wars podcast, where each week we discuss one of the films in the current Star Wars canon. From the sands of Tatooine to the levels of Coruscant, we cover it all. Yet another Star Wars podcast is available wherever you get your podcast and is part of the Forgotten Entertainment family. Hey, I'm Shamar. And I'm Andrew. We're going to be doing a deep dive on all the connected DC animated movies in their cinematic universe. Yes, I'm here to discuss the interconnected storylines and point out how jacked everybody is. And I'm here to share deep comic book knowledge like Batman having his own sneaker line. So check out yet another DC animated podcast. Part of the Forgotten Entertainment family and coming soon wherever you listen to your podcast. I do begrudgingly want to talk about the uh, awards conversation with this. So how do you pitch this film? Uh, A smaller film like this, you know, it's going to get, you know, clouded up by a lot of the other big known uh, properties that have come through the film festival circuit. And one big one that hasn't and don't look up all backed by Netflix. Sometimes they have too many films. It seems where they have to hyper focus on maybe categories here. So, this one, if you think one category for this that's going to have the legs to go all the way to the Oscars, do you have one in mind? I mean, the obvious one, I think, is Ruth Nega in Supporting Actress. I agree. Um, but I think if you have some crumbs to move elsewhere, you should definitely be pushing 
Rebecca Hall for Best Adapted Screenplay. I mm. know that she has the competition within Netflix with Maggie Gyllenhaal winning a bunch for Adapted Screenplay. Right. But I think that one of the things that Rebecca Hall has over what Maggie Gyllenhaal has just in general is like Rebecca Hall is this really revered actress. Yeah. Both on stage and on screen. Yeah. So I I know that Maggie Gyllenhaal, yes, has had some really excellent films, mm-hmm. but, she, you know, there have also been some pretty big stinkers because like all the Gyllenhaals, they do enjoy having a nice paycheck from time to time. Or and, they do some crazy stuff. <laughs> or just absolutely crazy things that it's like, ooh, what did you put in your tea this morning? <laughs> yeah. Where I think Rebecca Hall, I mean, her only misstep really for like big budget films was she did do Iron Man 3. And even that is so forgettable that you don't even, you're not like, oh yeah, Rebecca Hall was in that. Yeah, I, I don't One. really, it's, it only comes top to mind because it's MCU, but other yeah. than that, um, I will say, because I'm a Shane Black apologist, I guess, a little bit too, that <laughs> I like Iron Man 3 enough. It's not one of my top 10 Marvel movies or anything, but it definitely, I, I think it's way better in part two. If, I, if if she was in part two, I'd be like, oh, I'm sorry. I'm really sorry yeah. for you. Um, oh, yeah. But yeah, definitely, yeah, Iron Man 3 is kind of mid-tier you know, at best in terms of the MCU and obviously with a bunch of big stuff to come, like the Spider-Man movies and everything else to come. So we'll see. Uh, but yeah, you're right. You make a good point there. To me, yeah. like I picture her when I close my eyes and see her, I'm like the prestige. I was uh, the town. The or town. I mean, yes, even I, um, I think Christine is one that has kind of refound its legs as like it was a Sundance film in the mid 2010s. Um that was the year that Ruth Nega was actually nominated for uh, Loving. And it was such, I mean, how do you choose between Ruth Nega, Isabel Huppert, um, Natalie Portman, Emma Stone, and one other person, probably Meryl Streep, were nominated <laughs> that year. Yeah. So it's like, who do you get rid of? Sure. If not just start axing the men and giving the women the nominations. Yeah. Um. So, I mean, like she had that she's been in uh professor marston and the wonder women um she just did the night house where maggie gyllenhaal her only visibility is her film where she is behind the camera right where rebecca hall also has a physical presence because she had that film earlier in the year right so this is essentially my pitch to Netflix. Yes, I know Maggie Gyllenhaal is incredible. Yes, I know that she keeps winning awards. Please give Rebecca Hall a chance here and really push her for best adapted screenplay because there are very few writers who I think were as purposeful and intentional as she was in her writing. And yes, some of the dialogue you might say was a little bit on the nose that sometimes we have to be a little bit more pronounced when we are talking about subjects that people try to be dismissive about so you can't be dismissive when you're very straight with that so that is my pitch yeah (laughs) and i would say that only happens a couple times too so it's not like it's Mm -hmm. something that's overt throughout the film i think the film is mostly a subtle relationship drama it's not something that's going to beat you over the head with this and it does become more about them and their particular situation mm-hmm. versus making this 
overarching thing, even when they're talking about lynchings and, and being in that family dynamic, it, it, it makes it breathe better because it is in this relationship that we already know and we're in, invested in. So I think where they put it were, were very great. Like It was great choices in terms of positioning and where they put things in the movie um, at the proper times. And it really does build based on what's happening in and out of that immediate relationship. And I think it's it's very well staged. Yeah. Oh, yeah. And it, it, it all comes down to like, yes, her direction is impeccably good. But if she didn't have a strong script to be able to guide herself, because I think that that's something that a lot of first time directors have issues with is you need to have the vision all the way across the board. And, you know, if you're adapting a screenplay, you don't have another person saying, yeah, maybe not that scene or, hey, maybe not that thing. Right. Um, but she was able to really hone it in on both ends. So absolutely. And again, it, once again, my pitch Netflix, you can <laughs> thank me later when she wins. And it, even for if you were making a pitch for Tessa Thompson, I would be like, good on Truly. you. But this year is stacked. And the more I hear about uh, the films coming up, I think that's even going to be a harder proposition. I mean, right now. Kristen Stewart seems to be running away with this, but now off the top rope, I've heard more and more lately about Nicole Kidman and being the Ricardos being like that now 1A, 1B kind of a conversation by people who truly follow these things. And then earlier on than that, you saw Jessica Chastain get some love. Mm -hmm. And then, you know, Lady Gaga getting mixed stuff out of House of Gucci. Maybe she drops back. But then, oh, yeah, by the way, just hanging out there, as you mentioned, Lost Daughter, Olivia Coleman mm -hmm. just going, hold my beer. I'm going to take it from all of you. I took it from Glenn Close how many times? I'm going to take it from every single one of you for the rest of your lives. So, you know, the, you got that hanging out there. You got Penelope Cruz, Frances McDormand. You know, Jennifer Hudson seems to be like a way afterthought because it came out so early with respect. And, and the movie kind of got such middling results at best that I think when the movie suffers, you know, the performance does also go to the wayside everybody thought not maybe always it, though i know judy i know judy <laughs> but uh, look at hulu's the united states versus billy holiday yeah i no, have never sure. seen a film with no direction whatsoever and still a stunning performance in it so yeah you can't completely write that off but i think the position and where it came out certainly is not helping that yeah. film and then and then we have you so know, many we, more movies still yet to come. I mean, you got Jennifer Lawrence in Don't Look Up. You got Rooney Mara in Nightmare Alley. Uh, Rachel Ziegler for West Side Story. So, you know, and I haven't even said the word coda, which could come out of nowhere with a lot of these absolutely. things and have Amelia Jones or something. But, you know, or Licorice Pizza. There's so many ones that still like we're just going to get a barrage where, you know, a movie like this, unfortunately, could get a little lost. But when I look at supporting actress, though, I think Ruth Nega actually has a really good shot um, to get yeah. like maybe that sneak in like a fourth or fifth spot because the 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 characters from Mass unfortunately have been kind of losing steam. I don't hear a lot of people talking about that movie as much lately, and it came no. out earlier, and you know it kind of went through its festival thing, and kind of you know it's still a good movie in a lot of people's eyes, but a lot of people just kind of stopped talking about it, and I don't know if it can build that uh, momentum back up. Kirsten Dunn's coming through with uh, Power of the Dog. A lot of people are going to, you know, latch onto that, I think, at least as far as, you know, because she hasn't really been a lot of awards circuit, even though she's an actress mm -hmm. of note. And so it might be that kind of perfect storm with that one as well. Marley Matlin with Coda. 
you know, maybe you got that. Some of the Belfast love still going out for, for Balfi there. And then, you know, Anjanu Ellis with King Richard, you know, if, if that's getting praised left and right. Yes, mostly for Will Smith. But the movie, too, I find surprising that a lot of people are just like, it's a home run. So, and I know it's the wrong sport. Maybe I should get a tennis reference. <laughs> it's a grand slam, whatever. You know, it's fine. Um, but, you know, and still more to come. Uh, you know, yeah. and, and whether, whether you liked Dune or not, maybe Rebecca Ferguson or something, but you yeah. know, well, but, or Jesse Buckley in the lost daughters, cause she right. is also getting some recognition there too, which, or, or Dakota Johnson. Cause that kind of splits the difference with that one. Potentially. I also, no offense to Dakota Johnson. I love her chaotic energy, but, uh, <laughs> Jesse Buckley is, uh, far, far ahead in the, let me just devastate you with a look kind I, of I love acting. Her so, yeah. you know, it's if you have to choose between the two ingenue type women in that film, uh, you should probably go with the one that has, you know, BAFTA nomination. Yeah. Recognition there, um, you know, is currently on stage in the West End. Right. Yeah. You know, not destroying uh deservedly destroying someone's uh tv talk show career but <laughs> fair enough <laughs> but yeah i i hope the best for uh ruth nega in this i think she has a real shot and and i wonder i think if netflix was to choose one i think they're going to try to position her and, and see where that goes you know but again they spread themselves so thin i i hope because this isn't you know kind of the first one of these kind yeah. of more major prestige drama type Oscar-y films that are coming out late in the year that maybe we're going to, you know, just kind of this being an afterthought, you know, six weeks from now. So let's hope that, you know, maybe some of these, uh, you know, critics uh, nominations or things that are going to come through or the fact that, you know, the the actual Gotham Awards, won't that be coming in the next yeah. couple, a week or two? Yeah. And I mean, the fact that they, uh, the Gotham Awards best director category is like chef's kiss perfect. Um, so the fact that they included first time director uh, Rebecca Hall in it, I think is yeah. massive. Like, I don't think that she's going to have any legs going into award season. Right. But again, if you're looking at putting your weight behind something, that uh, original screenplay from someone who has been nominated as a director and writer certainly doesn't hurt. Yeah. Unfortunately, I, I hate to borrow a term from uh, like sporting stuff or Bill Simmons, but it almost feels like the Gotham's is set up to be a loser goes home match with like, yes. uh, you know, between lost daughter and passing where if, you know, the critics and, and the, and the voting bodies there kind of push these into position because I think they both had five nominations. So if, mm -hmm. if, if one of them comes out with a higher number where they're stealing the headline, that might, you know, be the push that Netflix needs to put it through the machine and try to get it to go further than maybe they thought that these films could do. So, you know, passing definitely needs it because this movie is out now. Lost Daughter doesn't drop on Netflix until the 31st of December. So it's literally the last, last one. So <laughs> it still has time to rebound once people get a hold of it, uh, especially even if it comes. I think it comes out in theaters two or three weeks ahead of it, too. So it can have some steam. But if the Gotham's come out positive for passing that's the best thing that can happen to this movie and, and i like i said i wish for certain categories to really pop for them they'd totally deserve it yeah i will start my 
uh, you know, rituals of praying to <laughs> all of the female filmmaking gods to uh, go in passing's favor. And speaking of, uh, you know, <laughs> female filmmaking gods, uh, what is up for your podcast for, for people to check out the Untitled Cinema Gals podcast? What do you have on the burner going over there? So we, I mean, we're going to do an episode on passing with people who are far more qualified than my white ass to talk about <laughs> passing. I'm just going to be honest about it. I, right. You I are definitely about, a poor choice for this podcast. Then. I, you know, I'm just, I'm going to just talk about the technical stuff, but all of the social implications, I don't know. I literally grew up in white suburbia. So right. <laughs> um, that's not my that's not what I'm going to be talking about, but um, we're also <laughs> going to be doing an episode on uh, RBG, which is currently on Netflix. Mm -hmm. And uh, my name is Polly Murray, which are two uh, documentaries directed by Julie Cohen and Betsy West. We're probably going to do some more mini episodes because, you know, holidays and things are getting crazy. I hope to uh, rope Chels into at least one holiday double feature. Uh, <laughs> so we will see if uh, we can make all of those things happen before the end of the year. Yeah, I definitely got a bunch of those coming up myself. I've already watched Love Hard and, you know, uh, A Boy Called Christmas comes out next week or the week after, a uh, week and a half or something. So with some big stars going there for Netflix. So, yeah, I'm going to get caught in that that storm yep. coming up soon. Holiday time. I love it. I, I also listen to, the, uh, I have friends who are on a podcast called 12 Days Pod, which is 12 weeks of them talking about Christmas movies. So if we don't get to it, there <laughs> is a podcast with great episodes already talking about, they just covered this season, A Christmas Prince. So, there you, go. Yep. you know, top tier. Yeah. Unfortunately, I am staring down the barrel of watching the uh, three, what's the Vanessa Hutchins one? Uh, Christmas Switch. Or uh, is that? Yeah. What it, yeah. Mm -hmm. So, yep. Uh, the third one's coming out. I haven't seen one. I've been kind of almost goaded into watching all three to cover it on this podcast. I don't know if that's happening. I don't know. I can stomach all of that. Um, but we'll see. Vanessa Hutchins, uh, you know, one of the Netflix all-stars. So I might have to to bow to the queen. You might uh, have to. Yeah. And kind of get through that. Uh, she is in Tick, Tick, Boom, which comes out this Friday, which we'll be covering, hopefully, also on this podcast this Friday. So, be sure to stay tuned to this podcast. Thank you so much to Morgan uh, for being with us, even if you think you maybe weren't the right person for the job. But I disagree. You did an excellent job, and you are welcome back on here anytime. And happy award season to you. Thank you so much. Uh, please pray for my liver during the next <laughs> however many months we have for this one. Well, cheers to you. Thanks again, Morgan. Thanks so much. <laughs>